You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, If we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The 200-proof strength of the Gospel in Romans. It's been a crazy week. I know for so many people, I'm thankful you guys made it in this morning. So some of you guys are still without power, been without power for a while, been without showers for a while, but you're here. So thanks for being here this morning. So I've been encouraged this week to see our church family love and serve other people by bringing them meals and do stuff like that. It's been super encouraging as a pastor to see. So my name is Rick, if I have not met you, and I've been tasked by the members of this church to be the lead preaching pastor. So that's my job. That's what I do typically on a weekly basis, and I'm thankful to have that job. I want to just highlight something this morning that for those of you guys who have been praying for Courtney and Corey about uh, their baby's arrival, their two twin baby boys arrived a few days ago, Colton and Carver. And so more babies to the GCC family. So lots of babies. We keep popping babies out. And so more here. And so want to celebrate that with them. If you're wondering how you can love them, serve them, and help them out, there's uh, going to be a meal train, I'm sure, in the near future you can sign up for to take them meal. So with that, turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4 is we're going to continue this morning. Romans chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Romans 4, 1 through 12. This is going to be the main point that I want you guys walking away with this morning and remember. And the main point is blessed are the trust fund children who sing deep in their trust, okay? That's already going to bother you because no one likes trust fund kids, okay? And I don't think that's fair to them because it's not like they signed up to be trust fund kids. They're trust fund kids because their parents are wealthy and then that wealth gets handed to them. And so that's how it works. There's a lot of uh, caricatures that come with that. I don't think all trust fund children are bratty, pretentious people, but the, the, the main point, which if it hits a little bit already, that's the point because the text should do that too. Blessed are the trust fund children who sink deep in their trust. And the reason why that hits us and we don't necessarily like it is because we live in America and we value hard work. 
and we value the blue-collared, hard-working man and woman. And so naturally, we say, we want people that work hard. We want people to put the effort in. And I get that. Brad Leibolt, our executive pastor, my wife can tell you, there's a book called Five Languages. I don't know that I necessarily align with those five. My two are hustling and heckling. Those are my love languages. And I don't like losing, but I can lose as long as there's some hustle that happens. For instance, I'm on a city league basketball team called the Neutrons. I did not name the team that. It's, it's mostly nerds. And I'm not saying that to be offensive. They, they, would, they would call themselves that. They're biochemists and astrophysicists. My wife's like, why did they ask you to be on the team? I'm like, I don't know. I don't think that's nice that you asked me that, but I don't know. I'm convinced, you see, in school, you force the nerds to do your homework. When they get older and they make all the money, they force you to come and be their enforcer. So I think that's why I'm on the team. So we, at halftime, were down by around 30 points. Not, nothing big. So I asked... I asked, can we eliminate the mercy rule, which the mercy rule is that if you're down by over 30 points, they stop the game because they want to have mercy on you. So I asked this other team, I was like, hey, we just want to play. Any chance you guys will bypass the mercy rule? And they said, sure, we'll bypass it. So I'll just to say this, I would have been very, very disappointed to lose by however many points we lost. I don't even know. But here's the reality. Every member of the Neutron Squad, <laughs> I can't even say it. Every member of the Neutron Squad was hustling like crazy. They were awesome. And I came home and, and my wife can tell you, I had a good attitude because it was incredible to see the amount of just effort and hustle on the team. Granted, hustle, hustling and effort doesn't always equal success, but they put in a lot of hustle and a lot of effort. And so it's easy for us as a culture and as a society to praise Hustle, praise work, and praise effort. In a lot of ways, those are good traits and good characteristics of a Christian. The problem is, is when we bring that to the topic of salvation and how we have a right standing with God. Because now all of a sudden, we're saying the gospel gets flipped. And what it does is actually, it, it does, from everything the world says, the gospel comes in and it's upside down. And we almost go, we don't know what to do with that. That's what we're going to look at today. Blessed are the trust fund children who sink deep in their trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I know it's been a crazy week and lots of bad news. We praise you that we get to come together this morning, that we get to assemble and hear the good news, that we get to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ who we're going to be with for eternity and celebrate what you have done, Jesus. Father, help us to surrender this morning the things that we want to cling to, especially our own righteousness. Father, I pray for those that are struggling, still without power, that we as a church family can love them and serve them. So lead us to them and to do that, to have an impact on our city. Father, we pray uh, for our city. We pray that the gospel would be such a radical light that goes forth in our city that we would engage people that maybe were scared to engage, that we would get invested in the lives of people that uh, isn't easy for us to get invested into. Father, lead us with boldness, lead us with courage, lead us by your spirit. Lead us deep into your word this morning. Speak to us, encourage us, strengthen us, convict us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm also gonna say this, our greatest danger, I'll rephrase, one of our greatest dangers, if not our greatest danger, is our own righteousness. So I'm going to say that again. One of our greatest dangers, if not our greatest danger, is our own righteousness. And what I mean by that is our own 
desire to prove our own awesomeness. So that's our own desire to prove how awesome and how good and how righteous of people we are. And I would say that's extremely dangerous. But that's going to be what Paul is hitting on this morning. This is a question that people have asked for centuries. This is a question that people have asked from the beginning of time, is how is a person made right? And specifically, how is a person made right? And how do we have right standing with the holy God? And so I would ask you this, and write it down on a piece of paper if if you want. If someone asked you this question, how would you respond? What do you think the requirements are for you to get into heaven? So maybe you're here this morning and you're visiting and you're new to the church. You're new to this message. You're new to the Bible and all that. Let me ask you that question. If someone asked you right now, what do you think are the requirements to get into heaven? What would you write down? Or if they asked you this, if, if you stood before God and God said, why should I let you into my kingdom? How would you answer him? Because those answers are going to be really telling to actually what you believe. You see, in Matthew 7, we have an example like this. We have these people that are standing before Christ and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then the Lord says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Yet the people that stood before Jesus had the audacity to tell him all the good things, all the spiritual things they had done. And Jesus says, I don't know you. But they just gave a list of very righteous things that they had been living and doing. In fact, we had a video that we ended up not showing. Uh, and, it's, and it's done by Legionnaire Ministries where they go around and interview people. And they're asking this question. Uh, Zach said, he's our director back there, said not to do it. It's a legal thing to do. So I want to honor that. Uh, it was an epic video. There's a guy with a cool rat tail. I wish you guys could have seen it. But anyway, almost everyone gives the same answers. Here is why God should let me in. And they always start with I. I've been a good person. I've lived a good life. I've done this. I, I, I try to do the best I can. Wrong answer to start with. It should always be you. The sole basis, if anything, I had this conversation one time on vacation with a waitress and her and I were going back and forth. And she said, well, how would you answer? I said, I don't know if I would. I would just point to Jesus and say, that's the sole basis of why I should ever be let in him and him alone. His work, his effort, his righteousness, his goodness, him, not me. That is difficult for us to get our minds and especially our hearts wrapped around. Let's read Romans 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here's a citation from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. 
The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without becoming circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Here's how we're going to break it up today. Verses one through five, we're going to look at how do we become trust fund children, okay? One through five. In six and eight, we're going to look at what is the blessing and what is our trust actually in? And then in the rest of the passage, we're going to look at who gets to be a part of the trust. So let's dive right in and start here. If you look at this passage right out of the gate, Paul is doing what he's been doing throughout Romans so far. He's, he's answering questions that he believes the church in Rome will probably have. And so he's doing kind of like this dialogue. He, he's saying, I know you guys are probably going to be asking this question at this point, And so here's the answer. And so the answer that Paul is addressing is how do we have a right standing before a holy God? And he knows that the Jewish people will have the tendency to say, well, well then what was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, according to his body, according to his works? He goes on to say, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, because he was not justified by works. He was not justified by the flesh. Now, I read this passage over and over and over and over again. I asked the Lord, if I'm missing something, show me something. It was this morning that I saw it. It just glared out to me. We have the Holy Spirit illuminated it, and it was this. Verse 3. Underline this in your Bible. For what does the Scripture say? That is the most important question we can ask for why we do what we do. When it comes to parenting, what does the Scripture say? When it comes to how we're running a Sunday gathering, what does the scripture say? When it comes to everything that we do as a church family, everything that we do in life, it's not how do I feel? It's not what should be the most pragmatic method. It should always be what does the scripture say? It's not just Paul who said this. Jesus said this and Peter said this. That was a question they were always saying. That's the question that that's the most important question that we should always have as we're talking through subjects in life, different matters and stuff like that. It's not what did mama say, not what did daddy say. It's ultimately what the scriptures say. And what Paul is saying is, hey, what does scripture say about how we have a right standing with God? And what he's doing is he's going all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles, to Genesis 15. And what he's showing is this, scripture has always had the same message. Salvation has always been the same. There's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There's not a shift and change. We have always been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Old Testament looked to the promised Messiah for their salvation. The people present time were looking at the Messiah. We get to look back to the Messiah. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. Salvation is always, our right standing has always been the same. That's why Paul is saying, well, what does the scripture say? Let's go there and see what the scripture says. It says this, Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. You're going to notice this word counted comes up a lot here. Abraham believes. Abraham trusts. Abraham has faith. What does faith mean? Faith means confidence. In fact, that's where we get faith from. Confide in the Latin. With faith. Confidence means trust. Confidence means assurance. So as Christians, we don't have faith in general things. Because it's a term that we hear thrown out from the pulpit all across the U.S. Just have faith. Have faith your finances will work out. 
Have faith that your marriage is going to work out. Have, have faith in this. I was watching a movie last night, and they're like, hey, man, when God closes one door, he opens up a Chick-fil-A. So have faith God's going to open up another door. That's horrible theology. Horrible. Why? Because sometimes God closes a door, and then he chooses to bring the whole house down. Read Job. He doesn't tell you to transfer your hope into the next door that's open. He's constantly pointing us to transfer our hope into a greater hope, not a next door, but Jesus Christ. So when we look at faith, when we look at belief, when we look at trust, we need to understand the object of that faith is a man named Jesus Christ and his work. And that's primarily what scripture's talking to when it tells us to have faith, to have trust, to have belief, to have confidence. We're not even saved by the measure of our faith, but by the object of our faith, who it's in, Jesus Christ and his work. So how do we become trust fund children who sink deep into this trust? We believe just like Abraham. You see, if you go back to Genesis 15, where Paul is getting this from, you see what happens there. God promises Abraham that he is going to have an offspring, and through that offspring, he's going to be blessed, and the world is going to be blessed. There's going to be much offspring, more numerous than all the stars, and Abraham is pushing 100 years old, and so is his wife, and they've been trying to have a baby for years, and so Abraham responds, well, maybe it's with this guy. And, and God goes, no, it's going to be your very own seed. And so Abraham believes God. Genesis 12, 6, you can read it. And then it says, it was counted to him as righteousness. But the question is this, for if Abraham was justified by works or by the flesh or by circumcision, he has something to boast about. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. We can read down below and we will in a minute that this circumcision happened two chapters afterward. So God declares him righteous two chapters after in Genesis 17. Then he gets circumcised, but God had already declared him righteous. So it wasn't based upon the circumcision and it wasn't based upon any works. It was based upon God's declaration of his righteousness. I was going to make a lot of circumcision jokes, but I decided to cut those out because most of them were ripped off from other people. And if it's not original to you, you don't have a lot of skin in the game. So I'm just going to move on. Come on, guys. That was better than that. You guys, you guys are lame. Come on. All right. So anyway, let's get back to it. I'm sorry for derailing us. This is a common argument because people say, well, what about our works? What about our efforts? And you got to love what one of the reformers said. God doesn't need our good works. Our neighbors do. Now, are, as Christians, are we set apart and as God set apart good works for us to do? Yes, but as it pertains to our right standing with before God, they're null and void. So that's what, that's what Paul is simply trying to lay out. And he goes on to say, and, and underline this too, because this is one of those verses in the Bible where if you read it and reread it, you're like, whoa, does our Bible really say that? So look at it with me. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you go to work Monday through Friday, 40 hours, when you get paid, that's what belongs to you because you did the work in, uh, because you put the work in. Verse five, and to the one who does not work, that's what's hard. To the one who does not work, but believes, but trusts, but has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if you caught that, if, if you work, all you're getting is the very due reward that your work is. But to the one who does not work, but completely trusts and completely believes in what Christ has done, that is the person who's counted righteous. Imagine this. Same town. 
there's a guy named Hardworking Harry. Hardworking Harry goes to work every day, puts in 12 hours, comes home after that. Instantly, he jumps in. He's helping his wife. He's helping with dinner. He's helping do chores. He's helping get the kids put to bed. He's tucking them in, doing the whole process. Hardworking Harry, very praiseworthy man. In the same county lives Lazy Larry. Lazy Larry can't keep a job because it's always everyone else's fault. Lazy Larry is a great ESPN dad. When he does come home, he's got his feet up on the couch watching ESPN. Fellas, do not be that man. In the evening, he hardly contributes to his family, to his wife, to anything around the house. Falls asleep on the couch. His wife does the work, puts the kids to bed. That's Lazy Larry. Now imagine, the county does this big event, and they say, what we are going to do is hand out this incredible award to the most incredible man of the county. And it's not just going to be any award. We're going to give him a million dollars, a new home, a new estate, and all this stuff just for being an incredible man. And everyone's expecting to hear hardworking Harry's name. And then all of a sudden, the announcer says, and let's give it up for Lazy Larry. Everyone would be appalled. You'd be like, no, not Lazy Larry. The dude doesn't even have a job. He doesn't work. He doesn't do anything. He's lazy. When we come to the gospel of grace, and when we preach the gospel of grace and say that you are saved not because of what you do, not because of your works, not because of your efforts. It should produce something in you like it would if Lazy Larry got the ward. Or oftentimes it does produce that because what we like to think is that we're good people that do good work, that do the best we can in all those things. And then it comes in with this message that says, Paul comes in with this message that says, nah, blessed are the trust fund children. Those who get everything, those who get it all by believing and not working, not to their effort. And we're like, whoa, that doesn't make sense. That goes against everything that the world says. And we're like, exactly, it does. It's, 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 it's offensive. And for the religious, righteous person in the room, you're like, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that Harry gets the stuff. And the problem is, is because you think that you are a, a, a good Harry who deserves all the awards. And the reality is that you're in danger because your own righteousness is the very thing that you are probably looking at for your own salvation. It would be like this. You're in war with someone, same thing. Dude, hide behind the rock the whole time you're up there. You get your leg blown off. Something horrific happens to you. And the other guy who's hiding the whole time gets the Medal of Honor. You're like, that's what we get with Jesus. We don't do any of the work. He lives a, a worshipful life of complete honor to God, of complete obedience loving God perfectly, loving others perfectly, and he takes his worshipful life and he dies like he's the worst criminal of all time on the cross. And then he transfers, when we have faith in him, that good life, all of his merit, all of his perfection, his, his righteousness onto us, and then takes all of our unrighteousness onto him by faith, by belief, by grace. We get everything by trust. Let me do this. Jess, would you hand me that chair right there in front of you? Should have brought it up ahead of time. We're going to use a prop today. It'll be fun. Thanks, Chris. We can all agree this is a chair. I hope. This is a chair. Now, as I point to the chair, you could probably say, yeah, I agree with you. It's a chair. Now, if I asked you, could the chair hold you up? You might say, yeah, 
I believe the chair could hold me up. And then my next question would be, is the chair holding you up right now? And for all of you and for me, the answer would be no. This is important because we're answering the question of how do we receive this blessing? And it's through trust. But here's what I'm getting at. It's not just through belief in God. I can believe that chair exists. I could even believe that the chair could hold me up in it, but I have not put my full weight of confidence into that chair. It is just sitting there. And so sometimes I love it when people come to me and they say, hey, I'm dating someone. I'm like, great. Do they love Jesus? They're like, I don't know, but they believe in God. I'm like, so do demons. Because James, the book of James literally says that demons also believe in God. And so the difference is, has, have they placed the full weight of their trust and assurance in Jesus to be their savior. You see, it's not until I go like this that I'm saying I have confidence, trust, and belief that this chair can do what I think it can do. And for us, it's not until we place our full trust in the work of Christ and his work to save us. Look at what David says here. Again, what Paul does is brilliant. He's calling on one of the Uh, main figures, Abraham first, and now another main figure, David. Look at verse six. It says this, just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Look here, here, here's the blessing. If you want to know what the greatest blessing in all eternity ever is, it's right here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Not some of his sin will not count his sin, period. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. If you feel guilt and shame over sin in your life, this is the greatest blessing. Blessed are those whose sins are completely forgiven. If you want to know what this word forgiven means, the other time that Paul uses it is when he speaks of divorce. Your sins are divorced from you, separated from you, unbound from you, removed completely from you. Blessed is the man whose sin is no longer attached to him. It's been separated from him in the eyes of God. Blessed is that man and woman whose sins are forgiven. And blessed are those whose sins are covered. Covered with what? We know from chapter 3 right before this, it doesn't say Jesus here, but Paul is building on his theology. Blessed are those whose sins are covered with the righteousness the purity, the holiness of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man and woman who the Lord is never going to count their sin against them. That's the greatest blessing in all of human history. How did we become a trust fund baby? Belief. Just like it was for Abraham, just like it was for David, just like it's always been. Trust, trust, trust. It's always been trust. What is the blessing? This is the blessing. That we're forgiven, removed. All sins removed. We talked about this last time I preached. They're removed, but you're not in a neutral state. You're in a positive righteous state because Christ's righteousness is supplied to you. You have the fullness of it. So not just morally neutral, morally positive. You are covered in the righteousness of Christ. When do we get this? We have to go up and read this in verse 5 to see. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Meaning this. It's not when we clean our lives up. God's grace and the sufficiency of Christ comes to us in our state of ungodliness. There's no one outside of God's reach. There's no one outside of it. 
it comes to us in our ungodliness. And here's the other reality. The, the righteousness of, of Christ from a Protestant understanding is that we're declared righteous. And what that means is this, is that God declares Christ's righteousness is legally belong, belonging to us. It doesn't mean, like Roman Catholics believe, that, we are in, uh, that there's some sort of righteousness that comes within us and that we no longer sin and are moving towards sainthood. It means we're instantly declared to be a saint by God. The righteousness of Christ belongs to us, but we are still going to struggle with sin. It's still going to be a battle. That's why Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said, simul justus et peccator, what he meant is this. It's Latin. I'm simultaneously before God a sinner, but I'm also simultaneously before God a justified, righteous man. Both of those are realities. Remember how I said that our own righteousness is dangerous? Here's what I mean. The reason I I would say so much of your marital problems and relational problems, I'll say it this way, a lot of your marital problems, relational problems, and all that you go through in life is because of your own righteousness. I know this from counseling and talking with people. Oftentimes, we'll talk with a couple. And what's brought up is, is one of them might say, well, uh, well, they're controlling. I'm not controlling. I just kind of know the way things should be done. They're super angry. I'm not angry. I'm just a little frustrated because that's not being done the right way. And what do we do? What we talked about last week, we start self-justifying everything that we do. What do we do? We go from sitting in here, trusting that our righteousness is fully from Christ to going like this. Actually, I need to prove myself. Or it's like this. The person who sinks deep into their trust in Christ sinks lower and lower and lower. They don't need to stand up to prove themselves. They don't want to stand up to declare their innocence. They know that their righteous standing before God is based upon Christ's righteousness. That's why maturity in Christianity isn't now all of a sudden after God saves you is needing the gospel less. It's sinking more and more into Christ and his righteousness. The mature Christian doesn't defend themselves more and more. They don't need to prove their sinlessness. They know they have the sinlessness of Christ that belongs to them and they sink deep into that. You can receive constructive criticism. You can receive things that are going on in your life because you're not stuck constantly trying to prove how awesome you are. The awesomeness of Christ is what defines who you are. And you get to sink deep into that. Now, as much as I don't want to share this, I'll give you an example. I see the way my own righteousness has an impact on my marriage. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget any of these. I think I'm a better parent than my wife oftentimes. At times, I believe I am a far better spouse who is more loving. I believe I am more selfless than she is, more thoughtful. Gets better. I believe since I am fit and take care of my body, she should physically pursue me in light of this. It's nice. I think she's the primary cause of a lot of our arguments. I think that if she could adopt more of my style of life and communication, that things would go better. Here's the thing. I don't like sharing that. That is the honest truth of what I commonly believe. And then therefore our arguments exist because I am trying to prove to her how awesome and righteous I actually am and that she needs to see that. And then what happens in relationships is you can go hours and days without talking to someone because you believe you have the right to withhold conversation because they can't see how right you are. Now the person who has sunk deep into their trust in Christ and into all that they have in Christ knows that they're a broken sinner saved by grace and they would not be a part of Christ's kingdom and a part of his family if it wasn't solely for the grace of God. That person seeks and pursues and lays down, putting to death their righteousness. 
So who's a part of this? Who's a part of the trust? Here's the beautiful thing. Let's read. What does scripture say? Verse nine, in this blessing, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Let's see. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? We covered this. It was not after, but before. God declared him righteous in Genesis 15. He got circumcised in Genesis 17. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all, all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So who is this blessing for? Blessed are the trust fund children who sink deep in their trust. Who are those? Those who have faith in the finished work of Christ. Christ's life, Christ's obedience, Christ's bloodshed, what he accomplished on the cross, his resurrection where he proved everything he said was true. Those are the ones who are justified, who are righteous. Who's that for? The thing that blew away the Roman Empire in the first century, the the thing that people couldn't get their mind wrapped around in Rome was how in the world is this new religion, that's what they refer to it as, called the way, Christianity, how is it merging and bringing together people from different ethnicities, from different socioeconomic backgrounds. It was blending and doing something that had not been done in the Roman Empire. And it wasn't doing it through ideologies. It was doing it through one way, through the exaltation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was blowing people away. They're like, hey, how are these people hanging out? How are Samaritans and Jews getting together? How's all this happening? And the answer was, there's this one man who everyone has their trust in, that no one deserves to be in right standing with God. And they put their trust and faith in him and he's brought them together in a united family where they share the greatest trust fun in the world. Sons and daughters, infinitely loved by the living God. It's for everyone who believes. Imagine this, you find yourself at a banquet. It's an incredible banquet. There's a group of people all around you. The food is unbelievable and everyone looks so elegant. All the men are wearing expensive tuxedos and all the women have the same radiant gowns on. The room is filled with joy, laughter, and also a sense of bewilderness. Why? Everyone was asking the same question. How'd you get in here? To which they all responded with the same answer. That man over there. You see, I had rags on and he took those rags and clothed me in this. Me too, said person after person. Same clothes and same answer. No one was boasting. No one was taking pride in how they dressed themselves up. No one was telling about all the good works they did to get into this banquet. There was no comparison. Everyone simply pointed to the man. In church family, hear this. So it will be for all eternity when the church is gathered at the wedding supper of the Lamb. No boasting in our hard work. No comparison. No celebrating in what we've done or what we haven't done. All pointing to that one man, Jesus Christ, and saying the only reason I'm gathered around his table for all eternity is because of what he's done, what he's finished, and what he's accomplished, his work. We share that in common. In fact, that's what communion is. We're going to take it in a minute. Communion, you see, baptism is this one-time celebration that is showing that we are married in this marriage covenant with Jesus Christ. Communion is this week after week celebration that we go to the table and say, oh yeah, just like Abraham walked in faith, what does it look like to walk in faith and walk like Abraham? The table is a picture of that. We literally walk to the table to celebrate 
the broken body and shed blood. What we're walking in faith to do is say, that is my righteousness. That's my trust. That's my trust fund. He is everything he's done. I am holy. I am blameless. I am spotless. I am innocent. I am righteous. I am righteous because of him. That's what communion is. And then we look around and go, oh yeah, that's the same for every single one of us. There is no person that's slightly more awesome or less awesome or more righteous or less righteous. And that's how it's going to be for all eternity. We wear the same clothes, the robes of Christ's righteousness. Blessed are the trust fund children who sink deep into that trust. What do we do in light of this? Let me say a couple things and we'll wrap up. The gospel doesn't turn us away from God's law. It turns us to God's law. And what I mean by that is that the person who understands that it's not our adherence to God's law doesn't look at God's law and go, Ugh. we look at the God who saves us by his grace, who gives us everything in Christ. And the law no longer becomes this thing that leads to despair going, I just can't do it. And it no longer leads to this thing that goes, I'm doing the law better than all y'all are doing the law. It squashes all that. The gospel turns us to the law to say, I can now live out God's commandments, knowing that his love is not tethered or anchored to how well I do those. The gospel turns us to the law of God. It impacts the way that we live. And, and church family, l- let me say this. I met with a friend of mine last week, and he, and he said one of the sayings that I, 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 I like start to twitch when people say it. He, he's, he's not a part of this church family. But he said, yeah, you know, I've been going on those small group things, but I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm like, no, no, no. Okay. That says it all. And I told him this. I was like, I loathe that statement. Because what the Christian church is, that Christ has purchased and redeemed, is it's this group of people that share the same thing in common that are giving their lives for one another. It's not this place where we go and just suck people dry. It's this place where we go and say, hey, I think you're kind of inching up out of this chair, and I want to help you sink back down in it. I think you're kind of starting to stand in your own righteousness and I want to help you sink down in it. I I think you're kind of putting your faith in some of these other things over here and I want to help you sink down in it. And what we have is a mature community surrounded by one another, helping one another sink deep into our trust in Jesus. One another helping others. And I asked him, I was like, how many people from your group have you taken out to coffee? Well, none. Man, we got to help one another because our own tendency, our human inclination of our heart is to constantly start doing this once Jesus saves us. Well, I did this. Well, I did this. And it's to help one another sink deep into trusting in who we are in Christ, not in our performance. It's not something we're, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. We help one another in this. And so if you're someone who is not plugged in, my encouragement is get plugged in into deeper community. It's scary. I get that. But it's going to be more scary to know that you're inching your way up out of that chair throughout life instead of enjoying the rest that is in Christ for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that your word answers the question, what does scripture say? And it tells us that we can trust in you. Let us sink deep into the trust that we have in you, into the work that you've done. I know that it goes against our society and that it goes against our own heart's inclination to try to save ourselves, that we don't want to be a a, a trust fund child, but the truth is, is that everyone shares that in common. We all came with hunger, We all came as beggars, we all came in need, and we've all been supplied with the righteousness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.